Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Curiosity isn't wanting to know or to get, but rather wanting to connect, connect the things we do know to the things we're about to know, also to connect ourselves to our world and ourselves to each other and communities to each other. And um, so curiosity is this drive to connect and to build some kind of web of, of knowledge. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome Perry Zern and Danny Bassett to the show. Dr. Perry Zern is Associate Professor of Philosophy at American University. He is the author or co-author of more than 75 publications in philosophy, political theory, trans studies, and network science, and has given hundreds of talks at local, national, and international venues. His work has been generously funded by organizations like the American Philosophical Association, the Center for Curiosity, and the Lee Summers Fund, and more. Dr. Danny S. Bassett is the J. Peter Skirkinich Professor at the University of Pennsylvania, with appointments in the Departments of Bioengineering, Electrical and Systems Engineering, Physics and Astronomy, Neurology, and Psychiatry. Together, they authored more than 390 peer-reviewed publications, which have garnered over 38,000 citations. They authored more than 390 peer-reviewed publications, which have garnered over 38,000 citations. Dr. Bassett has received multiple prestigious awards from the American Psychological Association, Sloan Foundation, and MacArthur Foundation, among others. Perry and Danny often collaborate on research about neuroscience, curiosity, and the humanities. Recently, they co-wrote the book, Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. In this episode, I talked to Perry Zern and Danny Bassett about curiosity. For them, curiosity is not just about gaining knowledge, it's about connecting to the world and to each other. Each individual has their own style of connecting. They can be busybodies, hunters, or dancers at any given time. Perry and Danny also weigh in on how social media affects curiosity and how their network model of curiosity can improve education. This was a really fun and great chat. Dr. Danny Bassett and I go way back to my pen days. We used to get coffee together, and that was a lot of fun and intellectually stimulating, and all three of us had really great energy together, and we really nerded out a lot about the science of curiosity and what it means for your own life. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Perry Zern and Dr. Danny Bassett. 
Danny and Perry, it is so great to have you on the Psychology Podcast. How the heck are you doing? We're thrilled to be here. Thanks for having us. I hope you're both doing well. And I was very excited to see that you have a new book out. It's called Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. I know you've both been super interested in this topic for a long time. Uh, And I know because, Danny, we we had many conversations at Penn about curiosity and the amazing amazing work you've done. I remember our coffee chats. Do you remember our coffee chats? I do remember our coffee chats. They were great. You know, if you could kind of tell our listeners a little about the background, uh, you know, I, I know it personally, but, you know, if you could just some, give some more context to our listeners about how you got interested in studying this topic and how long have you been studying it, these, these sorts of things, just give a little more context. That'd be great. Sure. I got into curiosity in grad school, uh, primarily because I was uh, researching the history of philosophy, the history of Western thought, and curiosity gets kind of a bad rap in that history. And I just thought, hmm, there's got to be more. That's sort of, the, that's straight, right? Because today, curiosity is just great. Everyone's sort of on board. Great, you know, let's let's all be more curious. And then in the you know, medieval period, mm-hmm. ancient period, folks were like, oh, curiosity gets you in trouble. I got into it in, in, in grad school to try to tackle it from a philosophy perspective. And then we started talking about it. See, really, when, when, when you were a postdoc, right? Then, yeah, I mean, at that point, I was really interested in cognitive flexibility and also in brain flexibility and how is it that the brain can move between different cognitive states and how can we detect that using an MRI or magnetic resonance imaging machine. Um, and so Perry and I started talking a lot about brain flexibility and how that might then help us to better understand the cognitive movements that are that are needed or that are evinced by curious thought. Okay, so stepping back for a second. So Danny, you're a you're a neuroscientist. Yes. And Perry, you're a philosopher? Am I am I getting this right? So yes. this is a really incredible pairing. <laughs> um you often don't see such a pairing, right? In trying to really contemplate such deep issues. So first of all, I I'd love to be a fly on the wall in a lot of your conversations that you all have when trying to trying to figure out humans. But also something that people might not know is that you're identical twins. Is this true? <laughs> it's true. You know that I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> no. I did not know that. <laughs> um you can't no. tell from the faces. I, it just never dawned on me, I, you know, like we've hung out. It's not like you explicitly told me, oh, we're identical to, you know, so um, that is that is so cool. So is this something that growing up did you two talk about a lot? Were you were you both really curious kids? We were really encouraged to be very curious um, by our, especially by our mother for, uh, well, through K through 12, we were homeschooled in a very free-spirited sort of way. Um, so I think she was always telling us, figure out what you want to know and then figure out how you're going to know it um it was very empowerment centric um so i think i think we we're both naturally curious but i think our uh environment in that respect was really enhanced i agree that that's something that we certainly had at the beginning of our um our lives but i think that we didn't really start talking about focusing on curiosity as a place to intersect our scholarly work until much, much later. That was really, um, you know, 
in as when we were postdocs because i guess it, you know what happened growing up is that we tried to sort of separate a little bit and define what it was that we were each interested in and that's when perry went off to do a degree in philosophy and i went off to do a degree in physics and then physics and then neuroscience um and and then it wasn't until after that that we realized actually we still maintain some really key shared interests um and now we can communicate about them from these very distinct disciplines. And that's where this book came about. I love that. The subtitle of your book is so intriguing. And I, I imagine you wrote it in a, to intrigue people. And it's the power of connection. There's many ways you can kind of interpret that. And, and a lot of people don't necessarily connect the idea of connection to curiosity. Um, so can you talk about in what sense you're referring to connection? Sure, I'll set it up a little bit um, before we turn to sort of network science. But historically, again, primarily in Western intellectual history, which is what I know the most about, curiosity has been thought about as an acquisitional approach, from an acquisitional approach. So curiosity drives us to want to know something. And typically we grab it, grasp it, we talk about getting it, knowing it, taking it home with us in some sense. Um, and this kind of curiosity is, a, is this drive to know, it's this desire to know, this desire to understand, et cetera, et cetera. And while that's, I think, illuminating in many ways, um, this acquisitional approach seems not to be true of our experience of curiosity or of the science behind curiosity. And so we sort of went back to the drawing board and I revisited all the old texts and Danny revisited all the new <laughs> science. And, and we came up with the, what we call our connectional model of curiosity, which is that curiosity isn't wanting to know or to get, but rather wanting to connect, connect the things we do know to the things we're about to know, also to connect ourselves to our world and ourselves to each other and communities to each other. And um, so curiosity is this drive to connect and to build some kind of web of, of knowledge. I have you there with what you just said. Roy Baumeister um, I've always found it really interesting, his research connecting the idea of meaning-making to human connection. He says there would be no meaning-making if we're not in the context of human connection, that that's, that that's what meaning is, is the interweaving uh, of lots of different things that you start to connect the dots and when we feel like we have meaning in our lives. I, I, wanted, I was wondering how you, um, how you react to that, Perry, that idea, and how that connects to the work you've done, the work you're doing at all, you know, and, and how how's curiosity connected to meaning? You know, I'm curious if you see any connections there. It's a, it's a really powerful mm -hmm. um, quotation and reference there. And it resonates with me a lot. I would say yes. And doesn't that change then what it means to learn or what it means to work in institutions of learning? Um, so many times I think uh, all of us fall into a pattern of thinking we want to pass on knowledge or we want students to gain knowledge, not so much to make meaning or to build connection. I think especially through our work, one of the things that we really want to focus on from a, with the connectional model of curiosity is to say, hey, we're here because we want to build things together. We want to craft and create um, meaning and societies, right? Cultures and values together, not to be these individual <laughs> nodes who are simply gathering other individual nodes of knowledge and yeah, stockpiling. Yeah, disembodied so, ideas <laughs> and things. But yeah, Danny, uh, I'd love to hear some of the thoughts you had there. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the disembodied ideas is a, is a really great phrase. And I think where I was going to pick up maybe is if you think about curiosity as simply acquisitional, where we gather a piece of information and we kind of stick it in our pocket, um, almost like coins that you would then put in a, in a purse of some sort, right? Um, so if that's what happens, then, then what can you then do with those pieces of information? Well, the only thing you can do is kind of take one out at a time and look at it and then put it back and take one out and look at it and put it back, right? Um, or use single pieces of information for something very specific. But what uh, the connectional account offers is a different affordance, which is that once you understand the relationships between ideas, then you're able to reason right? You can say, oh, because this is connected to this in this way, therefore this is likely to be true. Um, and you can reason about things that are conceptual. You can reason about things that are emotional. You can reason about things that are personal and social and, and everything else. And so it's, it's that connective nature that actually allows you to think, to make meaning, and then to share the meaning with one another. We don't share meaning with one another as independent units. We speak in these sentences that connect ideas to one another in, in broader structures. Um, so the connective model uh, provides these additional affordances, but it also raises some challenges, um, particularly how do we understand the kinds of connective architectures that we make do we each make different connective architectures? So maybe the connective architecture that I am making in one area of work is different than the connective architecture of somebody else. When we're teaching in a classroom, do each of the students build different connective architectures? I think about there's a very common craft that young kids do in elementary school where you have a bunch of um, uh, toothpicks and then lots of the mini marshmallows um, and you build something out of mini marshmallows and toothpicks. And it's this connective structure that sometimes it's very ordered, sometimes it's very tall, sometimes it's very disordered, um, and every child makes something wildly different. I think that's sort of also true in the way that their minds work and the way that our minds work, even as adults. And so the connective model allows us to um, to address that the, the challenge or poses the challenge of understanding those patterns of connectivity. I think addressing that challenge is where network science comes in. So network science is a relatively new and emerging interdisciplinary field of inquiry, which asks the question of how do we understand patterns of connection? Typically, those patterns are in social networks. So the pattern of uh, social connection among friends on Facebook, on Twitter, in real life, maybe even. <laughs> um, and uh, it allows us to quantitatively characterize uh, those patterns and say how they're similar versus different. And so that's where some of the work um, that I've been doing in, in uh, network science comes into play in an important way, is, is understanding those connectivity patterns. What's the learning curve for network science? How long did it take you to get up to speed on how to use those methodologies? Like, could other academics who are from other fields, and let's say they're like super inspired by this podcast, they want to get up to speed on it and incorporate in their work, you know? Conceptually, it's, it's not particularly complicated. And I actually want to turn this over to Perry to talk about the connective nature of certain styles of curiosity in, in a second. But maybe before we get there, um, I think that there is also a lot under the hood in terms of mathematics that if you wanted to understand, you could, um, but you don't need to in order to understand the concepts that network science is trying to tackle and the typical methods that somebody might use if they wanted um, to bring that perspective to bear on their work. 
I would just add that there's um, network science is really built on the back of um, network theory, which was developed in sociology um, in the 70s. So certainly for ever, everyone who's listening to the psychology podcast and, and who's interested in the psychology, sociology way of approaching things, there's lots you can read um, of network theory if, in a field that's far closer uh, to what you do than neuroscience also. So maybe I can learn a little more because I actually have published papers using network science um, applied to the default mode brain network. Is this the same network science you're talking about? Are we talking about the same field uh, where we've been able to map, we've been able to show um, how brain efficiency of the different regions of the default mode network, um, the extent to which the different areas communicate with each other actually predicts your openness to experience personality scores. So we, we published that paper. Is that using similar methodologies as what you're talking about? It is absolutely. Yes. It's the Whoa. exact same methodologies. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Great connection. We just made a connection. We just made a connection. We did. Um, I think that the, the way in which it's used in terms of curiosity is, is both how we understand connectivity patterns in the brain, but also how we understand connectivity patterns between the bits of information that I we're guess. acquiring when we're learning something. Right. But that work ha- was motivated actually by early work from Perry, where he dug mm. into um, the last two millennia of the Western intellectual tradition to sort of un, well, excavate, I guess I would say, particular styles of curiosity that are prevalent in that literature um, and and philosophy as well. So, Perry, maybe you can take it from there. Sure. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I I found well, were three different archetypes of curiosity, ways in which curiosity gets practiced, and specifically ways of building those connections. So yes, we all build our connections relatively differently, but there are styles, there are recognizable archetypes of how it is that we build our our knowledge and our connections together through curiosity. I'll I'll just sort of outline the three. The first is the busybody, somebody who loves to kind of listen to anything and everything and and just just get into whatever topic has has struck their fancy in that moment. And they have wide interests. Is that the butterfly? Yes, we yeah we use a butterfly mm-hmm. as a symbol on the cover of the book, and then there's the hunter, which is someone who's far more focused and really wants to know a lot about a little, uh, and that person was more likely not likely to have vast knowledge network, but rather to have dense knowledge network, lots of information, lots of little tiny connections, all the information that they've gathered about this particular thing. That's a different style, right? What what when if you were to look at the knowledge that's built, it's mm. a different shape than the busybodies or the butterfly. But then the third archetype is what we call the dancer. And the dancer is someone who typically takes leaps of creative imagination. So you're sort of learning something here. And it's not just that you let the world sort of tell you something new to be curious about, like a busybody. And it's not that you decide, oh, there's a tiny little thing I don't understand here, so I'm going to dig deeper, hunter. But instead, you, something strikes you about something quite different from what you've been thinking about. And you say, wow, what if I brought these two together? What would happen? Um, and so that person is typically really creative, really artistic, kind of has an aesthetic appreciation for what they're building. And risks, takes a lot more risk in what it is that they want to know and end up knowing. So their knowledge network we call uh, loopy because there are these big, big gestures uh, throughout it. So those are the three archetypes, and we're not committed to them being the only archetypes forever, right? We have a whole appendix about creatures, animals specifically, and how they might give us a whole new slew of styles of curiosity. But but these are three that we've actually been able to 
uh, experimentally uh, affirm. With Wikipedia users. Exactly. Yes. So you might think, and and we wondered whether the archetypes of curiosity that have been present, you know, 2000 years ago, would they be the same as the ones that are present now? Has humanity changed? Um, but also how has technology impacted the way that we engage with information? And is it possible that technology and specifically the internet and online encyclopedias um, are, are, are changing the way that we think. Um, and therefore, we wouldn't see the same styles of curiosity, right? So there, there are some arguments to suggest that might be the case. So we went into this investigation wondering, would we see the same things? Would we see something different? And this was work that was done in collaboration with David Lydon Staley, who's at the Annenberg School of Communication at Penn. And what he did is that he had uh, participants engage, it, browse Wikipedia for 15 minutes a day um, for 21 days. And what we were able to do with that data is that we could say, how nearby are people stepping? So if they go from this web page to that web page, how far away are those concepts? So maybe they first start with um, a rhododendron bush, the, the Wikipedia entry on the rhododendron bush, right? And then the next page that they go to is one on oak leaf hydrangeas, which is another related, there's both bushy plants that you might stick in front of your house. So that would be a relatively short um, connection, a relatively short step that individuals are making. Alternatively, you might have somebody who starts with a rhododendron and goes to the Queen of England. And then uh, the third page they go to is on game shows. Um, these are huge steps, right? Uh, and so the that distance in the step size is something that tells you about the space that they're walking through. So if you follow each of these steps um, and see, sometimes they go back to earlier pages, um, sometimes they move forward, sometimes they trace, trace back, retrace their steps, then you can see this kind of structure or scaffold that they are building by walking, by clicking through Wikipedia. And those structures then vary significantly along this dimension of being more busybody-like with very distant steps and being more hunter-like. So having closer nearby steps. That data suggests that there are there's a lot of individual variability. We may yeah. each really be different from one another, um, but they span the same sorts of archetypes that we can see from um, the historical philosophical account. That is so interesting. I, and I so I my question is how do we link up um, this framework with some modern day psychology of curiosity research? And I'll and I'm going to uh, put forth two frameworks and let's let's see how you integrate into your work. I'm so curious. One is some psychologists distinguish between deprivation curiosity and interest based curiosity. Um, they found that these are two different kinds of epistemic curiosity um, that we can be motivated and driven to need to know things, you know, and you kind of like in a deprivation sort of way versus just being interested in whatever kind of comes around. And the interest one is more correlated with positive well-being. Deprivation curiosity has been correlated with lower well-being. And in fact, I found in my research that psychopaths tend to score high in deprivation curiosity. So they're still curious. Psychopaths are still curious, but <laughs> they're curious and like, I need to know where I'll kill you. Sort of way. Um, I, I know it's dark. It's dark, but our research has shown that. 
And then uh, the other framework I just want to just bring up for conversation um, is Todd Cashton's five dimensions, joyous exploration and deprivation sensitivity, I think probably map onto the two we talked about. But he also talks about stress tolerance, social curiosity, and thrill seeking as different dimensions of curiosity. Anyway, I just wondering, have you thought about how all these kind of psychological frameworks fit in within your model? Yeah, we have. And in fact, in um, some of our work, we've shown... (laughs) we've shown that the deprivation uh, sensitivity is one that is correlated with the structure of the networks that people are building. So the more hunter-like individuals are those who um, have higher deprivation sensitivity, Um, whereas those who have lower deprivation sensitivity are the busybodies or the butterflies, the ones that are sort of just flitting around and don't need to fill in any particular gaps in information. You know, they're just expansive, jumping from here to there. Um, so there's actually a really nice mapping uh, from the, the deprivation account, certainly, onto these results. Um, there are There's less strong connections with some of the other dimensions um, that, you're, that you mentioned, but I'm particularly interested in the, the social curiosity part, actually. Um, and I wonder if we, ha- if we were to do the study again and ask people to focus, on, to only go to Wikipedia pages that are of people, hmm. um, whether we would be able to see a really interesting, again, range of individual differences in the way that they're building these these networks among those pages specifically, and whether that would correlate with the more social dimension of curiosity. I'm so curious about that too. I would also add, um, there's, you know, with these, with Kashtid's five um, dimensions, one of hmm. the spirit of it is something that we share which is that there are more types of curiosity and formations of curiosity, styles of curiosity than we appreciate. And if we get better at appreciating those different styles or archetypes, then I think we'll notice, we'll be able to notice and encourage and facilitate curiosity in ourselves and in others a lot more effectively. So, so the spirit is something that we absolutely share. I think with respect to the social curiosity, one of the things I've always wondered though, it seems to me that there, some folks have a joyous curiosity in social settings or um, a kind of a thrill-seeking curiosity in social settings or we could go back to my kind of pattern or archetypes I think there are social busybodies there are also social hunters I'm going to get to know you because you're in the area that I need to know about right or or the dancer I don't know I just happened upon you and let's collaborate I think I think that social curiosity isn't just um, its own dimension. I think it has all the dimensions in it too. What you said is so interesting. So I agree, but I want to understand more what a thrill what's what what's a thrill seeking form of social curiosity. What do you mean by that? Can you unpack that? I think some people strike up new relationships or conversations mm. with strangers really easily, and they're just what will happen? What's going to happen? What's this person going to say? I have no idea. They get asked to dinner afterward. Great, let's go. I see. Um, and then a more jo- so a more joyous. What's joyous uh, form of so just uh, you really get uh, deep satisfaction from learning about a, a person and who they are. Yeah, you just love people. You just love all sorts of people. Oh, uh, and you just live that sort of love and joy out toward whoever happens upon you. But it's not. But I think it's. I've known more th- more thriller style folks, social folks. Than 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 mere joy. I don't know, or than the simplicity of joy. I also know people who just love people. It was more like the joyous sort. 
there seems to be a a deprivation form of curiosity as well social curiosity maybe where you're uh using people as a, a way of getting your own needs met and you don't really you're not really curious about them but you're curious about them to the extent to which Absolutely. your deprivations get satisfied so interesting to map all this stuff in this in a network science sort of way how do we map all these different frameworks onto each other but <laughs> It's interesting. I mean, speaking about social curiosity and social thrillers, I was just listening to a um, a, a lecture from Talia Wheatley recently, um, who said that you know why don't we start all conversations with um, something like you know uh, something very deep that's not about the weather, but about what is the a very crazy action that you might be willing to perform, something like that. Um, and the idea being that you would get a lot more information a lot more quickly in that way than in, uh, and you might actually get a lot of social connection that way than you would by talking about the weather. Um, but I also think that it's interesting to ask then where the boundary is and are there boundaries for curiosity, right? Um, what you, Scott, have been sort of raising is that maybe, maybe there are, ways of engaging with another person that pass by their sort of overstep their boundaries or where you, you don't maintain enough boundaries. Um, or again, when somebody is like using another person for mm. gathering information or for satisfaction, that feels like, that feels like an issue of boundaries. So I'm curious right. about the thresholds on which curiosity might, um, work and, and how to be aware of them as we engage in these practices. And that's very relevant for social and political change, um, which is much more in Perry's domain than mine. My earlier book on curiosity, which is called Curiosity and Power, really digs into this. Well, what are the sort of power structures that um, inform ways of practicing curiosity that are more using other people for, for what you can gain from them or uh, to put, to make it really approachable, the early early years of anthropology, for example, involved uh, a scholar or somebody from a, from a more, typically a more uh, developed area to come in and simply sort of watch and assess and decide what's happening in this culture that's not like mine, and then go back and sort of write papers about it and get published and get promoted. Um, and that, that style of sort of, I can go anywhere and I can take knowledge from any context and go use it for my own conversations and advancement, that's a um, a style of curiosity that is well, really colonial in some sense. Uh, and and so we want to want to think deeply about well, okay, that's not how one wants to. That's not a kind of curiosity that builds interpersonal connections and these connections across cultures that I want to support. Oh, I really want to read your book. That sounds so interesting. Um, now it is possible to be more than one of these types of curiosity um, within a single body, right? <laughs> and we, we switch back and forth throughout the course of our lives and throughout the course of our days, right? So can you talk a little bit about how uh, the butterfly, the hunter, and the dancer in different contexts for different purposes and even at different times of the day um, can interact or can change in prominence? Yeah, I mean, something germane to our own uh, life as as teachers and as academics um, is simply that we start as as these busy busybodies or these butterflies because we have to learn large swath of things. We need to get familiar with a discipline or with a conversation that's already existed so that we can actually start participating. So let's get to know a lot of information. Let's understand this uh, large landscape of knowledge. But then we need to focus it 
And we need to say, okay, well, what is the question I really want to ask? And what is the area I really, really want to contribute to? Where, what do I want to write a paper about or have a conversation about? Um, and then as we focus, the more we focus, if we've had that larger context, there was often a moment in which we can make a, take a creative step or a creative leap. And we can kind of add our own experiences, perspectives, do some experiments, um, craft for, for me, craft kind of literatures or arguments that haven't been crafted before and d make that dancer step at the very end after being the busybody and the hunter and then the dancer kind of leaps back out and says, wow, what if we could, you know, rethink this entire idea or this field from the beginning? Yeah. And just maybe to echo those same ideas, but particularly from scientific scholarship, which I guess for for your audience, you're probably, you have some of, of both in humanities and in science, but certainly in science, I think I will often go to you know, different conferences and listen to talks in areas that are wildly different from my own and or read kind of eclectically. And it's in that more busybody like way that I come up with a new idea. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. That feels like it might relate to what I'm doing in this way. Um, and then I go down the hunter path uh, to sort of figure out what actually is there. Is that does the argument have legs? Uh, how would we create an experiment, etc. And then um, fast forward to writing a paper on it, a research article, and then um, writing the discussion section of the research article, you often want to frame like what that work, what those results could mean or could how they could stitch together so many different other fields, right? What is mm. the impact of that argument on everything else? And you want to connect it out. And so the discussion section of a paper in a scientific scholarly paper is one that does more of this dancer-like style. Um, so within a single scientific project, I think we walk, walk through those three. I also, though, wanted to come back to your question of timing, like throughout the day, because I think Perry calls these styles almost as if they're like clothing oh, yeah. that you can, you know, take on and off and change yeah. the style of your clothing, yeah. you know, from the morning to the afternoon, and then you're going out later at night, you're going to wear something else. I think for me, I find that early morning hours are ones where I am very, I can be very hunter-like. Um, late evening hours, I really can't. And late evening being like after 8 p.m. So that's not really late evening. <laughs> but, um, whereas I think that I am much more likely to want to have either the busybody or the dancer-like style in the evenings. And that's different for every person. I can imagine that others, Scott, I'm so curious about what you would say is your time of day type yeah. of curiosity. Yeah, I, I'm really thinking this. Uh, I, I was actually just thinking like, did you create a test? Like an online test that people can go and like, because I kind of want to take a test and really get a better sense of what my kind of dominant one is. You should do that. Great idea. Maybe that's a collaboration in, <laughs> in, in order here. Yes, because I'm really trying to wrap my head around all three of these mean. Um, I think that probably I am not the dancer after 4 p.m. <laughs> I think that's the most assured thing I can say is that like a after 4, like, yeah, I don't feel like I have the dancer spirit as much as I do uh, between the hours of 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. I think the hunter is like in the morning. Yeah, because you said that as well, right? Yeah, I think that's that yeah, that suits. So there must that suits me as well. That I resonated with that as well. I wonder, like, um, is this is common? Like, you look at the averages. Maybe most people. Maybe like there. Of course, there are individual differences. But maybe if you look at the graph of what most people, how they ebb and flow throughout the day, maybe there is like a trend for humanity. Mm -hmm. 
That's hmm. another research study. I, I'm thinking in terms of research studies here. We do. In the Wikipedia study, we do show that there's variation um, on the timescale of weeks. Hmm. Uh, that somebody may like tend to be a busybody, but you know, two weeks later they may be slightly more hunterish than they were, you know, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So that varies a little bit. But we didn't study sort of within a day, yeah. Um, what those cycles might look like. Yeah, I also do think our, our listeners would love a scan, like a little quick quiz. What's your curiosity <laughs> type? <laughs> yeah, or style? Yeah, style. and we should bring in some of the other animals from the from the bestiary appendix at the end. Actually, yeah, too. that could be super interesting. I wanted to talk a little bit about social media because that's a hot topic right now. Um, are they making us more curious? Are they? Are there ways in which all of this f- flooding of information without any connection of the dots, without any, you know, it's all dis- it's a lot of disembodied crap. I'm going to call it not just ideas. How does that affect? Uh, how's that affecting our curiosity? You know, between iPhone, Google, social media, all this information overload. I'm very curious to hear what Perry has to say about this, but I do think that um, going back to the distinction between the acquisitional account and the connective account, I think that um, you can acquire information or stuff, (laughs) um, you know, and you can try to stuff it into your brain. But I think that if the focus is on building connection, connection takes time and it also takes some amount of quiet um, and room for your brain to actually stitch together and and notice, oh, this is like that other thing that I heard earlier today. Well, in order to make those connections, in order to sort of build these kinds of inferences and, and and certainly relationships with people, it takes time and it takes a little bit of stepping back um, and, and waiting and noticing. And so I do feel like, um, Social media may be uh, providing us with avenues for acquiring information, um, but in order to do a lot of the connection that we need to do, I also think we need to take a step back um, and be unplugged in some senses. Perry, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I would say that social media in general is yet another uh, yet another form of media and this sort of fear that we um, are going to lose ourselves and unable to stay in contact with our souls and with one another has sort of been uh, a fear that has arisen around every advance in media from newspapers, the printing press, you know, and, and at advertisements and on. Um, so our worry about what we're facing right now is a technological shift and an and a, and a exponential shift in media is unique to us, but it also has a historical, a lot of historical precedent. And I think the fears early on fears were not well-founded um, and we are able to negotiate different forms of media in a way that is meaningful and have been able to do that for centuries. So I do think that we can do that today. What is troubling for me following Danny here is not what, um, not the social mm-hmm. media itself, but that we don't leave it or that it doesn't leave us, that we tend not to sort of put it away, but rather it's because if we have a phone that has all of those things on it. Um, it travels with us everywhere and every minute where there's a down moment where I have to wait for something or someone um, or use the restroom, whatever it is, um, or my kiddo is fine and I pick up my phone and check something. If it's filling all the, the empty moments in my day, I'm much less mm-hmm. able to learn 
effectively or create um, powerful things. So I think I think it's that. I think it's the stuffing quality All rather right. than the media. So maybe a moral here, a moral of the story is uh, to be less mindless in your life and to have more times in your life where you have consciously decided you're going to practice curiosity in a in a productive fashion so what does that even mean what i just said is that possible can we consciously practice curiosity does that does that phrase even make sense yeah i think it can i think the more that we are conscious of styles of curiosity ways of practicing curiosity then we can consciously choose to practice them i do think that's true um i also think that we would do well to notice our unconscious practices of curiosity they can teach us a lot of things. Uh, I think we're, we're, yeah, we're exploring all the time. Uh, so kind of sitting back and watching that happen can tell us a lot about curiosity that we may not yet appreciate. I've been thinking a little bit more about practicing curiosity and, and specifically noticing the practices of others um, and noticing which might be unconscious to them too, right? What I find really interesting is to think about people who have been mentors in my life um, and who, uh, whether they were, you know, actually older than me or not older than me, that they showed different practices of curiosity to me without even realizing it. And certainly without using those words at all. One of the things I find very exciting about life right now is just noticing the different kinds of curiosity that people show, the practices that they show without ever having, you know, the linguistic articulation um, yeah. to say that that's How what How can we doing. apply some of these, these ideas to the education system? And this is an, a, a topic very near and dear to your heart. What would you say to educators listening to this who want to apply some of those principles to uh, have their students practice curiosity? I love that idea, by the way, having, having students practice curiosity. For us, the, the connectional approach is helpful in sort of thinking about these architecture archetypes of curiosity how it is that we build our knowledge networks that's helpful because the minute you step into the classroom if you only think that if you typically think that curiosity uh shows up as someone who raises their hand a lot and asks a lot of questions um interacts with the assigned material specifically and a lot if you think that's what curiosity is you might miss a lot of curiosity that is happening in your classroom all the time but just doesn't show up in those recognizable forms. So again, it may not be physically demonstrated with raising a hand. It may not be verbally represented by asking questions. It may not be focused on the assigned text itself. It might have already leaked off the page. <laughs> and so if you don't, if you're not sensitive and aware of those different expressions of curiosity, uh, not only will you kind of experience a, a downer day because you just think the students aren't interested, right? Um, but the students won't get the encouragement and facilitation that they deserve. So that's 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 the impact. That's the front page impact for us of thinking about styles of of curiosity as as connecting information Amazing. in different ways. Dan, do you want do you have anything you want to add there within an education context? I, I remember at one point we had this discussion where you were thinking about like uh, connecting everyone's to EEG machines or, and and measure how curious they are in the classroom. Yeah. Did you ever do that study? <laughs> 
No, I haven't done that study, um, but I have. We have done some studies where we ask people to draw um, network-like maps of the concepts in a class as the class is unfolding. Um, so th throughout the course of a semester, we'll say, you know, here are the 50 concepts that are key to this class. Draw for me the lines of how these are related to one another. Let's do that in week one when you have no idea about the class content at all yet, right? You're, or maybe this is an evaluation of what you came into the class with. And then let's do it two weeks later and two weeks later and two weeks later. And we can see these networks growing and changing and reconfiguring. What we actually find is that the, the connections between um, different subdomains of the network um, become a lot clearer. So early in the class, people seem to be understanding kind of local information and how local information is connected up. And then later in the class, they can really see these longer distance, longer time scale um, relationships. And so that is, I think, um, really uh, interesting and, and exciting. But going back to sort of pedagogically what, what Perry was saying about noticing the different ways in which people are curious and, and displaying their curiosity, um, I really love and encourage it when people in my class will submit um, work that is quite different than what you would envision a traditional submission to look like. So for example, in my class last semester, um, I asked part, all of the students to write essays about the topic weekly, and then the midterm and final were also essays. Um, one person uh, submitted their midterm as uh, modeled after Alice in Wonderland. So it had Alice, it had the Cheshire Cat, it had the Mad Hatter, the Jabberwocky was in there somewhere, it had poetry, it had dialogue, um, and it illustrated the key ideas of this engineering class in terms of Alice in Wonderland. It was wonderful. It was absolutely Amazing. fantastic submission. Um, and is not what you would have anticipated or or asked, but it showed the expansiveness of this um, students' appreciation for the ideas and and creativity and linking them in this very different way. Um, so I love making space for students very to cool. do something ha like that. And have you have you gone into schools and worked directly with teachers applying some of this? I've done a little bit of this with K through really six or eight, so middle school especially. And students are very excited about the three different styles, and they're. They immediately associate, you know, oh, my parents, or this, this one, or this one, or my brother, or my sister. So it, the the styles are, are really intriguing, and they the students like to think of themselves as, oh, this is the kind of curiosity I have, or I am, mm. um, and it's okay if it's not the same as yours, or the same as my teacher. So in, the, in that really early stage, it does seem already to be empowering in some sense. Um, and, you know, I'm also interested in what what these mean for a, a classroom in which we have a lot of different learning styles in which we might have a number of different disabilities in which uh, or students who are neuroatypical in a variety of ways which really uh characterizes all of our classrooms well then how does this help open us up as teachers and empower the students to start thinking you know it might not be these three archetypes it might be something different and if a student had this if the, if this kind of sunk into the the culture in some way, and a student said, "You know what, Professor Zern, I don't have any of those curiosities, but this is the kind that I have," and starts describing mm -hmm. it, and this is how it works, this is what I need. 
uh, you know, like, great. Okay, great. Now we mm-hmm. let's let's go for it. You know, um, I just think one of the sections in the in the la- very last chapter, we, I talk about um, Naoki uh, Higashida, who as uh, a, a writer um, with autism, and and he describes his curiosity as reaching for kind of stars in the sky that he can't always sort of grasp. Um, sometimes you know he could see them, but they're not always. It's not always that I can get them and pull them down and express them to you. Um, he also talks about them as fish in a in a river. Um, again, where you can sort of see them, and then sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can touch them, and sometimes you can. Um, so if if curiosity feels like that, is experienced like that, how do how should I be teaching? How should I be entering the room here? Um, and what does it mean for me to validate and um, facilitate the way your mind works? Each of your minds work. That's, I think that's the call now, now that we have more awareness of the real diversity. Yeah, I agree, and that's a very much a, a mutual area of interest of ours is neurodiversity. I really look forward to seeing where this work goes. For the time being, you're, you're doing great work, and um, I really appreciate you coming to my podcast and talking about it. Uh, it's a real honor for me today. <laughs> thank you. you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.